Ladies and gentlemen, the first team selections for the Prince of Wales Conference. And now the remaining All-Stars from the Los Angeles Kings replacing Dave Taylor, number 12 right wing Mike Murphy. You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. However, the views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and other contributors. They do not necessarily represent those of the Los Angeles Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. My name is Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. World Cup preliminary games have begun. Rookie camp opens later this week. It's hockey season. We did it, you guys. We did it. The summer is gone. It's time to watch hockey. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review us as well. We appreciate it. It helps us out. Follow us on social media, Kingsmen Podcast, across all platforms. You know the drill. Uh, This week, we have another installment of our 50 Kings series. We did this one in person at the Kings offices. Um, It was an honor and a pleasure to speak to this man. I apologize if occasionally the audio dips out a bit. Uh, It was the first one of these we've done in person. Without further ado, do it, Dave. As the Kings continue to celebrate our 50th anniversary, our 50 Kings series continues at LAKings.com. Our guest this week, a veteran of 12 NHL seasons, number seven in your program, Number one in your heart, Mr. Mike Murphy, Senior VP, Hockey Operations for the NHL Now. But, Mike, thank you for joining us, by the way. And a king you'll always be. Am I right? I know you came here from the Rangers in 73, but a king you will always be at heart. Well, the truth of the matter is, yes, I've always felt that way because I was given my first real opportunity to play uh, with top players on a top line. Uh, when I came here in 72, played a lot in 73, Bob Pulford, Jake Milford were running the Kings, and it was they were reconstructing the team. They'd got a lot of players from a lot of different areas in the league. Uh, we started to grow together as a team, and by the end of 73, we were a pretty good team. And it was that opportunity where I was given some, uh, you know, frontline ice time, frontline uh, penalty-killing power play that – I really was able to prove myself as an NHL player. And I think because of that, when I think, or even when my children think, or my grandchildren think of me as a hockey player, they think of me as an LA King. Take us back to that time, if you would. The Kings uh, obviously awarded the franchise start playing 67. You come on some five, six years later. How had the team transitioned over that time when you got here? Well, I think when the first expansion draft took place the teams everybody knew the teams wouldn't be nearly as competitive as the original six but they were willing to let the teams grow and through draft picks and through attrition uh, players on on the original six being traded and being picked up by the uh, expansion teams uh, the expansion team started to get good and uh, the year I came, the Kings had kind of gone through a transition with Bob Pulford coming in, and Bob was a, was an excellent coach. He was very similar to what Daryl Sutter is today. He was a player's coach. He was a tough coach. He knew the game. He'd won Stanley Cups in Toronto, and he started to build a team, realizing that you have to have a good goalie, and we had Vashon at that time, who was who was exceptional. Uh, he had a good defense, guys like Bob Murdoch, Terry Harper. Uh, and then he started to round his forwards into place. And most of the style we played was to keep the shots to the outside, protect the, protect the goalie, 
and let Vashon make the big saves. And it worked. And all of a sudden, the team started to move through the standings. And over those years when Pulford was here, the team was very respectable. And we had some real good seasons. In fact, one season, we challenged Montreal for first overall. I think we finished third or fourth but uh, in the league. So it was a real growing period, and it was a fun period. Um, uh, and again, getting back to my own situation, I was given frontline opportunities and uh, playing with guys like uh, Butch Goring, Gene Carr, Tommy Williams. Uh, so I, I was given uh, I, I was given some respect with the team, and I wasn't just relegated to a fourth line like it was before. At the time of this recording, you currently rank 10th overall in Kings goals, 12th overall. In I'm Kings. really fading. <laughs> I, I remember I was like fourth or fifth. I'm fading. But I mean, you you played at an era and helped grow the team in the, in the market. You went on to become the assistant coach and later the head coach. Yeah. Um, how much work did they require of you off the ice as far as growing the fan base? Uh, a lot less than it is now in every city. Like I know, I know how how much work you guys and your staff, uh, the marketing departments, and all the NHL cities uh, promote the game and grow the game. We were at, in very initial stages then. We tried to do it, and we tried to do it the best we could. But hockey in Southern California was—I don't want to say it was a brand new sport because there was minor league hockey out here for years, but. NHL hockey out here was only four or five years old when I got here, and uh, the Kings tried to promote it and and present it the best they could, but it was a moving target. It was growing, and it was it, it wasn't growing nearly as fast as everybody wanted, especially Mr. Cook, who was the owner. But it was the real foundation for what you guys have today, you know. And, and I, I say to people all the time, back when I played for the Kings. Uh, we were often a punchline and a joke. And it wasn't until Dean Lombardi and Daryl Sutter and their staffs took over and won the cups in the, the two cups in, in 12 and 14 that they became recognized as an elite, uh, superior hockey organization. And now, uh, old kings, they puff up their chests and beat their chests. When people say, hey, I used to play for the L.A. Kings, people take note. Back then, like I said, it used to be a punchline. So what the kings have done and where they've grown it is a real tribute to the people who run the organization now. Uh, I read a profile of you that said uh, early in your career you were trying to crack the Rangers lineup, were having trouble, so you refused to play another season in Omaha and instead went, went to go back and sell used cars in Toronto. Um, that kind of courage and self-confidence had to have served you well when you were ultimately named captain of the Kings. I mean, is that kind of attitude something that you take with you later in life? Yeah. You know, I, I think I wanted to let the Rangers know that I wasn't content with playing in the minor leagues. And they had a very strong organization, a very good organization run by Emil Francis. And I wanted to let them know that I wanted to play in the NHL. That was my goal. And when I left school, I was at the University of Toronto, I left school to play in Omaha and had a great year. Uh, coach being Fred Sherrill, who went on to win two Stanley Cups in Philadelphia. And we... Uh, I wanted the Rangers to know that, hey, I, I don't just slough me off here and send me back to the minors because you're able to. I want to play in the NHL, and I told them. And at that point, I'd only signed a one-year contract, and contracts were completely different then, so it was easy to say, hey, sayonara, I'm going home to you, pay me more money. And that's really what the uh, the holdup was all about. 
I didn't want to be paid at the level they were willing. To, they wanted me to be paid at, so I held out and I got the Works money. <laughs> I got I got the money, and I actually I actually must have forced a trade because I played about four or five games back in Omaha at a significantly higher amount of money than the year before, and I was traded five games into it. So I was traded yeah. to the Blues at that time. So uh, I don't know if I ticked them off. I must have because it, <laughs> but it worked. Uh, you wound up in LA a few years later. Yeah. Um, obviously, the hockey culture would have been completely different. What about the the rest of the culture? Was it culture shock coming out to Southern California? Well, I remember getting off the. I remember getting on the plane in New York. I was playing for the Rangers, and uh, you got to remember this is the Emil Francis is trading me for the second time in two years. So I'm <laughs> I, I'm I'm not sure which part of me he liked the most. You know, the one coming or the one going. But he sent me away twice. And it was rainy and drizzly, and it was uh, it, it just was the kind of weather you want to get out of. And I got on the plane, and I got off the plane here, and it was like 85 degrees and sunny, just like it is today. And the next day, I went to uh, Bob Berry, who was who was a player at that time, was having a reception at his uh, in-laws' uh, place in Playa del Rey, and it was overlooking the water. And I got invited to the reception. I really didn't know any of my teammates at that time, but I got and I thought, this isn't that bad a place. I'm starting to like it, you know. <laughs> so that was my first experience in L.A., and, and, you know, I was fortunate. I met my wife not long after that. She was a California girl, and uh, we've always had an attraction to this, this area. We've always, uh, I know she's always been a Kings fan, even, even before uh, we were married. She liked to cheered for the Kings. So, uh that's that was the drawback here, and we still come back all the time because of family and friends. So it's it's been great. Uh, King's first owner, Jack Kent Cook, notorious for uh, flamboyant personality. Let's say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you have any uh, run-ins with him? Oh yeah, I had a, I had a few. Uh, he was a. Uh, I remember the first time or one of the times I went in to talk with him. I wanted to get an expanded segment of bonuses because we were having a terrific year and I was personally having a good year and I thought well I'm going to go in and ask him for more bonuses <laughs> so I went in with Pulford and Milford and they were both petrified and I thought what's what's this guy doing you know why is he so why is he so frightening and I called the uniforms go I called them yellow and purple Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> he quickly informed me that they were it was that was forum blue and forum gold and he didn't ever want to hear the words yellow and purple again so that was one of my first runs and I didn't even get to my my additional bonuses speaking of the forum any any uh I've heard legendary stories about the forum the the parties post game at the forum and yeah. all the people and the celebrities used to go yep. are there any that you can share with us today um, well, we had, uh, uh, there was a place called the Forum Club there, yeah. and the Forum Club was, it, it was really one of the hot spots in L.A., probably more so with the Kings, but both with the Kings and the Lakers, when they played at home, that, that place would be jammed, especially on a Saturday night if somebody, you know, one of the original six teams was playing here, or back in the day Edmonton was playing here, everybody who wanted to be part of the game or part of the sport would arrive and they'd end up in the forum club. So we had all kinds of occasion to meet people like Glenn Fry and Don Henley and Bob Seeger. Uh, they were around a lot. Glenn is from... Uh, For the young people, these are rock stars. Yeah, yeah these are rock stars. <laughs> we have a lot of young people that listen. These are yeah. the Eagles. And, you know, yeah, right. and, and, and uh, uh, 
So we we had the occasion to meet them, and it was uh, it was really uh, there was a lot of uh, starlets and 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 uh, movie stars that would frequent the place, and we would rub shoulders with. But uh, you always had to remember what you were doing and what they were doing. So you had to be a little bit guarded because you could end up on the bandwagon, and that's not where you wanted to be. We're fifty years into the Kings now, at fiftieth season, obviously approaching. Uh, did you think at the time in 1973 that hockey would last in Southern California? Well, you were never sure because we we would have great crowds when Montreal or New York or uh, uh, Chicago, Boston would play. We'd sell the building out. But when we had uh, some of our division people, St. Louis, um, uh, Oakland was in the league then, Vancouver, we wouldn't get near the crowds. So you were never sure... So I think it was the impetus that Wayne Gretzky brought to the organization back in the late 70s. That was what defined hockey at that point in Southern California. And suddenly people started coming and saying, hey, this is a pretty exciting sport. And I, I don't think to this day and there's a, there's a more entertaining sport when you're there live. It's just the colors are exciting, the aggressiveness, the sounds. And even to this day, and I don't go to a lot of games anymore because I work in a very confined space, but when you when I go to a game today, I'm mesmerized by the colors, by the speed, by the aggressiveness, by the scoreboards. The guy, the people do such magnificent jobs with the scoreboards that you're never there's really not a downtime mm-hmm. when you're at a game. So uh, you were never sure, but I think when Gretzky came, that the the floodgates opened after that, and then. When obviously when 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 Dean Lombardi took over and the team started to grow and the, the, they won the cups and now I don't know how many nights it's been uh, sold out but I know you guys have a record amount of number of nights that you're sold out so it's it's more than a fad now it's the real deal out here and of course you got the great rivalries down the street with the Ducks and uh, I, I I try to get to some Ducks Kings games because I know they're there is an intense a rivalry as a Montreal-Toronto game is. Sure, you know, yeah. people don't realize that back east, but when you go to a Ducks-Kings game, it's serious business. Like, the fans are serious, yeah, the players yeah, are serious, yeah. and it's a blast because I, I've been in the uniform of the Kings, so I know that that rivalry is so so much fun when you can uh, when you can have it so close as, it, as it, the, the Kings and the Ducks are right now. The Kings are about to host their third All-Star game. Uh, you were named to the 1980 All-Star team as an L.A. King. Yeah. Uh, how has the All-Star game evolved as an event and for the players and for hockey ops? Well, uh, well, as an event, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's huge now. And players love to come because uh, the association with just being an All-Star, being there, uh, the people you attract, the... Uh, uh, obviously, with the national broadcast people that come come on site, uh, it's 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 evolved, but I think it's grown proportionately with our sport. You know, I think the All Star Game in '80 was big, which I was fortunate to play in. I remember the one we had here. I think it was '81, and and we had one. I think in two, uh, the Kings had one in 2000. I think it was 2002. 2002. Yeah. So you know they were proportionately. Uh, with what the league was doing and I think as the league gets bigger and its its footprint is bigger and the broadcast people are as involved as they are um, these are big events you know the players love to be here they love to be rub shoulders with uh, the other great players in the league and uh, 
LA's an easy city to attract people to because they know there's going to be a lot of celebrities hanging out. It's going to be fun bumping shoulders with them. So, and and the weather's going to be great. You know, so those type of things. We had a similar situation in Nashville last year. The the, the weather was great, and uh, they really put a terrific All Star game on. And I think the players enjoy for that segment of time in the middle of the season when when everything is so intense that to get a break for four or five days, and I say a break, they're going to come and play, but the the games never has the same intensity that the games have uh, when you're playing for your individual team at that time of the year. Although we introduced a new format next last year with the three-on-three. Three. I like that, and, by the way. I'm a big fan of that. I couldn't believe players the way they were trying. Like it was serious when you're out there three on three, and guys were back checking. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was. I I know we got to see the great skills of the players, but there was some intense defensive play. In fact, our last game, the championship game, I think it was one nothing. Mm-hmm. So how do you figure? You know, they played yeah. 12 minutes of overtime, and it's one nothing. So they were serious, and I, I I'm not sure of the format coming uh, this year. I don't think it's been announced, but. It'll be a lot of fun. The fans will love it. It'll be a great time, and it'll be a great spectacle, and there'll be lots of events and lots of things happening that people can rub shoulders with. Uh, you played with some big names when you were in L.A. Who was the most popular amongst the fans during your time? Well, I think without question the most popular guy uh, was Marcel Dion. Uh, and Marcel earned that right. He was an outstanding player, and I, I say to this day that if – if uh, he'd have been in the East, he would have been he, he would have probably gotten a lot more notoriety than he did out here. Back back then, there wasn't as much TV. Uh, we didn't do all our games on television. People didn't have dishes and cables and networks that fed the TV packages. So uh, Marcel was a little bit misunderstood out here. People only saw him when they went east. And a lot of times when we went east back then, we'd go for 10, 12 days. We'd play five games. Uh, a lot of times you'd be, you, you, you'd be on your heels most of those trips. So Marcel was really an outstanding player. He, wasn't, he was a, a great player. And, he, you know, he was... He was in the, the Gretzky-type style of player. Like, he made a difference in a game. He was a, he was a good teammate. He was a competitor. So th- that, was the, that would be the player, I would say, was the most dominant player of the group I played with. From an exciting point of view, fans loved Danny Maloney because he was tough. They loved a guy named Don Kozak because Cozy was a wild, crazy guy, you know. <laughs> and those type of names come to mind when you want to say somebody wanted to excite the crowd. Uh, Marcel excited the crowd all the time with his hockey skills. Those guys excited the crowd with their physical prowess a lot of times. <laughs> Uh, when you retired, you were named special assistant to George McGuire before ultimately becoming an assistant coach. At what point in your career did you get the sense that you wanted to explore the front office? Well, I think you're you're always looking at an opportunity to, when your playing days are done to to move in a direction that interests you. And hockey always interests me. And I thought, well, I'd like to coach. Um, how do I how do I continue to stay involved at this level? And that position was offered to me, and I thought, well, I got a chance to scout and learn junior players and hang out in the junior leagues, 
So I was up to Canada quite a bit. I got a chance to go to our games and see our games from a different vantage point where I was in the locker room with the coaches. I was in the uh, draft meetings. So I saw the other side of the sport, and I wasn't there long because there was a transition about halfway through that year, and I ended up being on the bench with uh, Roger Nielsen. So um, I, I really lucked out because I, I went from playing to special assistant to assistant coach, and then I had the privilege of working for a guy like Roger Nielsen. Then Pat Quinn came in the next year, and he was, uh, he, he was a, not only a wonderful coach, but a marvelous guy. And uh, that kind of pole vaulted my career, you know. And after that, I ended up being the head coach of the Kings and, and uh, I left the Kings and went up to Vancouver and worked with Pat again. So um, I, I was very fortunate. The, 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 everything seemed to fall into place for me at the right time. And I, I can only tell you I was blessed and lucky and uh when the opportunity came, I seized it, and I'm to this day grateful for it. I'm glad to hear you talk about Pat Quinn like that, because hockey's a small world, and it's a funny world, and yet it's a totally different experience for fans, I think, and people who work within it. The Pat Quinn situation created some ill will, uh, to say the least, and yet, as you said, you went on to work with him later. Um, can you talk about how, the difference between what fans might perceive in a situation like that and what it's like to be on the inside? Well, of course. it's it, And from a fan's point of view, you only see the optics of what happens, and that's Pat Pat signing with a second team and, and leaving the Kings. Uh, so there's hostility, there's anger, there's frustration. But I mean, uh, during a season. Yeah, during the season. And, and, and what it was... There was, there was a contract signed by Pat, and as I understand it, and, and I don't know all the details of it, but the Kings were to offer Pat a contract by a certain time, and if they hadn't offered it to him by that time, he had the right to negotiate another contract. That's what he did. The Kings' contract wasn't right, it didn't work out, he, so he negotiated a contract with Vancouver and signed it, which is against the league bylaws. You can't do it. You can't be under two contracts. And that's how, that's all how hell broke, broke loose. Uh, it was unfortunate for Pat because we actually had a good team. We were playing well. Uh, Pat was removed. He was actually expelled from the league. Uh, came back in the next year. And it was my opportunity to be a head coach. So I, I took over for Pat at that time. But uh, it, was a, uh, it, it was a funny situation. It was a, su- a situation I really didn't understand until I talked to a number of people. I, just, there were, I was just told... You're coaching the team now. Worry about that. So, the uh, the the politics that went on behind the scenes. I think I've outlined them for you basically, mm-hmm. but all the all the real details, I don't know them. Do you wonder sometimes, or wish sometimes, that fans could be uh, privy to some of those details and be a little bit more forgiving of the people that we? I mean, I'm a lifelong fan, and I've had plenty of fun booing Gary Batman every time he shows up, or or making villains out of people that, that rationally. I'm, I know I'm writing your name down. I'm telling Gary you boo him, okay? Because I'm trying to find that list of people that boos him. I got a long list right now. But do you wish sometimes that the fans were a little bit more understanding of the pressures of the job? I, not, you know, fans are fans. They they pay the bills. They have the right to cheer. They have the right to boo. They have the right to get angry at situations like that. And when you're in the sport as a player and as a coach, you realize that. So you suck it up. I mean, that's uh, uh, 
you know, I, I think that the fans have every right to be disappointed in what went on there. And uh, I don't think it's Pat's fault, you know, exclusively. And I don't think it's the Kings' fault. I don't think it's Vancouver's fault. I think there's a combination of factors that played out and uh, some misunderstanding and probably miscommunication. So fans have every right. They, they pay the bills to, to, to see this wonderful game. And it is wonderful because they do pay the bills and they can hire players like Kopitar and Brown and, and Quick and those type of players because uh, the, the teams support it. Uh, in your career, you've seen the league expand to the, you know, from 6 to 12 now. We're almost at 31. Yeah. Um, you've seen the rise of cable and the Internet. Uh, Gretzky gets a lot of credit for growing the game when he came to L.A. What's the, I don't want to say the biggest, that's such a simple question, but what's to you is the biggest factor in the explosion of the game? Well, I'll tell you, the, the the Oilers of the 80 intrigued a lot of people, and there were some great people that came off that team. And Wayne was one, Mark Messier was one, Glenn Sather was one. These people all kind of went different directions. Uh, Kevin Lowe was one. They became great personalities in our game and great spokespe- spokespersons for our game. And I think uh, at that same time, uh, Gary Bettman came on the scene, and Gary Bettman was was a very bright businessman. And our sport needed a businessman at that time. Uh, owner, the owners hired him, and they realized that Gary had a game plan, and his game plan was to grow the sport. And you grow the sport by marketing incorrectly, uh, getting the right broadcast partners, um, doing some tough things, doing some risky things. So uh, I attribute. That, those great t- teams of the Islanders and the Oilers, when they split up and those players started to dis- disperse through the league because of the the, uh, the ability to do it, and then the insertion of Gary Bettman into the league where all of a sudden he said, let's have a game plan here and get this sport moving. You know, we quickly got a team out here in Anaheim. We got a team in Florida. Uh, still getting criticized for some of those moves, but the footprint for the le- league became a real footprint. It became... You know, obviously, United States dominant, but um, we we have great franchises in Canada now. They're all healthy, and the franchises throughout the league are healthy. And you got to attribute that to the players who play and to the people who run their teams. And uh, I give them a lot of credit because they've hired a guy like Gary Bettman to oversee the whole thing. And Gary's very wise. Gary hires a lot of bright people around them to make sure that different parts of the operation are run with the right people. You mentioned the names Kopitar and Brown, uh, captains of the Kings. We're sitting here with a captain of the Kings. That's right. Uh, six consecutive seasons, second longest tenured captain in, in team history. What did it mean for you to wear that C on your sweater? Well, you're, you're always proud to be a captain because you're recognized by your teammates and by your by your organization as someone who they can rely on. And uh, I, I think the the captains are people who speak with their actions louder than their words. And if you play hard and you practice hard and you commit your, your life to being a good player and being a good person, that's what a captain's about. And I don't think it's a guy who gets up and gives speeches or talks it up in the dressing room or any of those things. It's a guy who lives his life right and behaves right in front of uh, 
whether there's three or four fans there or whether there's three or four hundred. You, you support your fans, you support your team, you support your teammates. And uh, I, I was always honored to be the captain, and I think uh, those, those guys are great captains too, and I'm sure they're probably honored to be the, the captain themselves. So you, you obviously saw a lot of players come and go during your captain scene during your time in the league kind of digging here but who's the craziest personality you had to kind of mold or you know what I mean to, I don't want to you don't have to get yeah. real specific but when it comes to personality major personalities of the game who was who stands out as wow he was tough or he was needed a captain yeah 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 that's yeah. kind of what I'm going yeah for. needed a captain yeah uh, well I I think that uh, I, I was lucky that my first year, Dave Taylor's first year in the league, I got to room with Dave Taylor. And Dave Taylor was a very quiet individual from Clarkson, uh, a late draft pick. And uh, Dave was such an outstanding player that he didn't really realize, I think, initially how good he was. And I was fortunate enough to be able to be around him and say, you don't know how good you are. you you got to push all the time. And, you know, Dave realized that hey there's there's a lot to accomplish here and there's a lot I can accomplish and the moment he got put with Marcel there was like magic and then Simmer came along a year or two later and there was real magic so he would be a guy that I feel like I influenced positively in saying commit yourself to the game you know commit yourself to being the best you could be uh Guys who were were tough to handle, uh, you know, a guy like Tiger Williams, I was coaching at the time, and he was always a tough guy to handle because he needed, he, he, he had to give him clear direction as to what you wanted from him. Otherwise, he might go off the, on the rails on you, and which he did regularly. So he was an interesting character. And, and, you know, we had guys like Dave Hutchinson back in the day. He was a real interesting character, and sometimes you had to, he had to talk Dave down because we didn't always need to be as physical as we might want to be. Sometimes you can win a game by just being your, the team you you are. And uh, so Dave was always a guy that, you know, keep him out of the penalty box and keep him on the ice. Uh, and every team has those guys. They get they – get, uh, highly motivated, I guess is the right word, overexcited. But uh, so he he was another guy that was an interesting subject. I always liked uh, playing with and coaching Bernie Nichols because he was a real free spirit. He was a a guy who had remarkable talent and and uh, loved the game, but was just always uh, you know always looking to do something else, always looking to move on. Um, he he was, but when he showed up at the rink, he could sure play. So. I always worried about Bernie being as focused as he could be, but Bernie was one heck of a good player when he put the blades on, and he, you know, when he was good, he was real good. And so, those are some of the interesting characters. Of course, Jimmy Fox was always an interesting. He's study. still an interesting character. Yeah. <laughs> he was always a real competitive guy and a real, a real coach. You know, delight to coach, smart, uh, attentive. Uh, he would often be like a second coach on the ice and some of the things he'd help players with. So, you know, you could go down the list of guys I played with. And, uh, you know, I roomed with Bob Barry for a long time, coached the Kings, and I was actually his roommate, and he became the coach. So I wasn't sure if I was still going to room with him when he was the coach, but <laughs> I quickly found out I was. And when I got put, put, on, put on the end of the bench a couple of times, but, 
yeah, there was some there were some really fine people that I was uh, associated with. That in, in the year I w- was the coach, there could have been a whole number of coaches. Bob being one, Danny Maloney could have been one, Terry Harper. So there was a bunch of guys. Yeah. We frequently hear in the sports world that the losses uh, linger longer than the wins, and that it's you know tougher memories last longer. But I want to ask you to to delve into one of the positive memories. Is there one goal? that you scored that ever stands out, whether because you were impressed with your own ability or first goal in the league or anything like that that stands out as, as a, a shining moment? Uh, I, I think there's a couple of goals. I scored four goals twice against Toronto, and th- those were those were games where my family was watching. Uh, a lot of my friends were watching, even though back then they weren't on television. Uh, so those two games re- I remember, and they were both at the Forum, uh, stick out in my mind because they were against Toronto. And Toronto was a team I grew up in that city cheering for, watched them win their four cups in the 60s, went to their 67 Stanley Cup final game that they won. So I had a real association with Toronto. and. I know my dad was always a Toronto fan, still is. So, you know, when I scored four on him, he was upset at me that night. So, <laughs> But that that would be, and I, I think that would those two games would be games that kind of stick in my memory a little bit. Um, I don't really have a goal, one goal that I would say was, you know, something that I would characterize as a, my favorite goal. So, yeah. Best player you ever played with? Or against, for that matter. Well, the best player I ever played against, like Orr and Gretzky, and were right there. I played against both of them, and they were different players. One was a forward, a centerman, and one was a defenseman. And Orr almost re redesigned the way defensemen play himself with the way he rushed the puck, the way he could skate, the plays he could make. And, of course, Gretzky was such a cerebral genius out there. And his 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 skill set was so large at passing and seeing and receiving and shooting. Um, so those two guys are, uh, you know, and, and everybody knows that they're in an area of all their own. Uh, I had the chance to play against Gordy at that time, Gordy Howe, but Gordy was 52, and he's still a lot better than I was at 52. <laughs> so I, I don't know how good he would have been when he was 22. And but strong as an <laughs> ox, from what everyone says. Yeah. That's, that's what we hear. So, so the, those are the two guys that stick out, you know. And 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 Marcel was a great king, and Taylor was a great king, and you know, guy a guy like Bob Murdoch really never got much credit, but was a real good defenseman when he played here for the Kings. For four or five years, and uh, uh, Butch Goring, uh, you know, went on to win four Stanley Cups. But he was probably undervalued when he played here. He was really a, a good player and a smart player and uh, a team player. So there's a whole bunch of guys that come to mind. You know, guys had great years. Tommy Williams had a wonderful year there at one time, and he one of the best shooters in the league. So yeah, you know, I think. Uh, as players move through their career, they have some high seasons, and uh, I've been fortunate to play with some of them who had their best years. And on a, a different, bit of a different, different note, you coached in the AHL in Milwaukee. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on the AHL's migration to the West Coast. What did you think of of their first season here in California and otherwise? Well, I, I think it's a brilliant idea, first of all, mm-hmm. because 
the teams on the West Coast now have quick access to players where they don't have to play short or they don't have to play an injured player. They're able to get a player there. I think that uh, they, they've they done a great job of designing it so that the West plays the West an awful lot and they do make a journey back East and vice versa. But I, I think it's it's given the league some real foundation and some credibility and I think they can grow the league from there and I like the fact they're playing less games you know one of the problems when you play in the American League or when you coached was you'd play three games in two and a half days and people don't realize that you play Friday night you play Saturday night and you play Sunday at five that's an awful lot of hockey in a short period of time and if you're trying to develop a player it's too much like a the Sunday afternoon games, and I had I coached it, but I also had sons that played in it. I'd go and watch them play Sunday afternoon at five, and they had nothing. There's nothing in the tank, so you're you're really opening them up to injuries. So I'd rather see a smaller schedule where we're we're focusing on practice, you're focusing on training, you're focusing on skill development, and there's still enough games to get de- development in. So. Um, I think they've done a good job. I really like what they're doing, and, and uh, I, I don't follow it as close as I should because I'm wrapped up with our, our sure. league. So I'm involved with our league a lot, but I don't get to as many games as I'd like. We have a lot of referees that are working in that league, and they're learning and growing their skills just like the players are. So we're often out to s- see how they're doing in games because they're the next group of referees that will be in the NHL. and. Uh, uh, but the American League is a great league, and it's run well. And I, I think the Western Division has been—it's uh, been a godsend for the teams out here. And I think they're doing it right. You're currently the senior vice president of hockey operations for the National Hockey League. Um, you were asked one time what the, what the purpose of that job is, and uh, your response, as I read, was you—you're the caretaker of the game. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, who sets the who sets the mission statement for that department and, and how much pressure is there being the caretaker of a game that so many people love? Well, I, I think the people who set the mission statement are the general managers. They're the people who decide the rules, who can change the rules. Uh, ultimately, the owners have to vote on it, but I think that the, the way the rules are changed is players come to coaches and coaches go to managers or players go to managers and they decide that they don't like this and, and then they present it to our group of people who then uh, we try to do the research on it and figure out what's really happening here and that takes some time and then we represent it to all the managers and if there's a desire to change for instance goalie interference coaches challenge there was a real desire to change and after four or five years of looking at this um it was our job to caretake it and to change it and to change it in a way that didn't disrupt the game we already have which was a great game and I don't like changing rules because I think our game's great I think it's exciting uh, I keep telling the commissioner if we could ever get rid of the commercials we'd have one heck of a game <laughs> he, he, then he said Good to me yeah you yeah. like he quickly said you like getting paid don't you and yeah. I said yeah okay sorry so that that's how I think it, it evolves and our league is is protected against knee-jerk reactions you know we we do a lot of research to change rules. Uh, we present it back to a competition committee, which is uh, five players and five uh, uh, general managers. Uh, they then go back and present it to the managers. And, and so there's a lot of steps before you can change a rule. And ultimately it goes to the owners and do you want to uh, approve this rule change? And it's a, um, 
it's good because it protects the game, protects the game we love. And right now, I don't think the game's ever been in better shape. As a fan, I've always been impressed with how thoroughly and how quickly the rules changes process. Uh, as you said, they're protected against knee-jerk reactions, and yet you can have something like the Sean Avery rule yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> thrown in. Um, the one thing that I've always been curious about is when a rule is implemented and over time doesn't have the desired effect, there never seems to be a, a move to revoke that rule. So, for example, adding the... Uh, the space behind the goal line. Trapezoid. Thank you, the trapezoid. trapezoid yeah. Or removing the red line was designed to increase scoring. We've seen scoring now drop back. Yeah. All the conversations tend towards, well, now let's try and make new changes instead of maybe undoing some of the previous changes. Does that conversation ever take place? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, we've been through, and I think you guys will recall, like, we had the tag up offside, yep. then we didn't have the tag up offside, yep. then we had the tag up offside. So, uh I, I think the reason being is there's lots of arguments uh, both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a Trump-Clinton argument. You could take <laughs> one or the other. And the red line in is an argument. The red line out is an argument. Sure. Uh, the trapezoid, we felt, I, I know when it was first put in, they felt would protect uh, the goalies from wandering off into the corners. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted their goalie checked into the boards or blasted. And goalies were getting out, and in order to protect their defensemen, they turned their back on a four-checker, knowing full well they couldn't get checked. So we felt it was a detriment to the game. And we had two goaltenders. I remember Broder and, and Turco would get out, and it would be like a game of ping pong. Yep. One would shoot it out. It would go <laughs> in the other end. They'd shoot it in. Yeah, he'd shoot it out. So I, I think in order to limit the goalie's ability to handle the puck, and teams then got smart, they started to do soft soft chips to the corner so goalies couldn't handle it. So you take the goalie out of the play. And goalies were still able to handle it enough that they could protect their defensemen, although one of the big criticisms of the trapezoid is defensemen don't get protected by the goalies. But it's it's a rule that, in my heart, I'm not necessarily in love with it, but I don't like to change rules unless we have a concrete reason why we why we're changing it. Uh, and that has to be presented to the managers. They have to say, hey, I agree with it. You know, I mean, Both Martys are out of the league now, so we can just wipe out the trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're both gone. Yeah. Speaking, of, speaking of goalies, uh, goalie equipment comes up every year. Mm -hmm. Do we shrink goalie equipment? Do we make the nets bigger? It seems every year there's this conversation. Where, where does the league stand right now? What is the latest? Well, we're, we're in the middle of a real uh, uh, plan it's, it's actually the phase one, we call it, of reducing goalie equipment. And it's upper body, chest protector, and pants. Hmm. And phase two is going to be pads and gloves. So uh, we've, we have a gentleman who works for the league, Kay Whitmore, who's a former NHL goalie. Sure. And he's formed a committee of which Jonathan Quick sits on the committee. And there's six or seven other NHL goalies, and they've gone through the equipment. They've looked at it. They've gone to manufacturers. The biggest drag in goalie equipment is manufacturers don't believe it's going to happen. And so they'll go to a goalie, and they'll say, don't, don't change. Don't change your stuff. You don't want to change your stuff. Change your stuff. You want to be big. And we've got a lot of goalies that fill up the net with equipment. And yet guys with high skill, a guy like Quick, he, he relies on his skill set and his ability, and he's saying, why can that guy at the other end of the ice fill up more net than me just because he's big? 
yet I'm relying on my skill set. So I think getting those goalies on board, the Schneiders, the Quicks, uh, the Longos, Longos, those are the guys who will support this and say, no, we want everybody to have fair equipment. We want it to protect us. We don't want to get injured from a shot. Sticks are better. Guys shoot better. We want to be protected. But we're willing to give up some of these these uh, pieces of equipment that do nothing more than fill up net and fill Garth's up space. Garth's no shoulder pads. That's what you're exactly right. I know it. Exactly you right. Have to say it, I will. <laughs> and there's a lot of little pieces that you when you get when you delve into this subject. There's a lot of little pieces that come up. The way guys wear their pants way down, and their mm-hmm. pants all flare out now, and well, they're not tapered. So uh, they've done a, a great job of examining the pan, the uh, the pants and the upper body and reducing it, making it much more conforming to the body, uh, much more contoured. And that's where we're at right now. You know, and that, as I said, phase one, phase two, they're going to look at the, uh, they're going to look at the, the, the goalie pads. They'll look at the gloves because they've actually got a piece on the glove that's called a cheater. cheater yeah. They've, uh, I know Kay has reduced sw- uh, the jerseys this year. So pucks aren't being caught by this, the sweater or the jersey. So it, it, they're they're beating this to death right now, and I hope that they come up with a with the right solution because it, it will mean more goals to our game, and our game can use more goals. I think it's fine the way it is. We have a great sport, but everybody likes to cheer, and I think goals are uh, goals are the way we cheer. Hear me out on this, Mike. The catching gloves are too big. They have the cheaters. <laughs> yeah. So how about we go with no stick for the goalie and two blockers? What, what about that? Then we don't have to reduce the trapezoid either, right? <laughs> there we go. See? Solved. We um, came to the right place. You mentioned general managers uh, being the ones who meet, uh, obviously, you have the meetings every year to, to suggest rule changes and everything. But there's only 30, well, soon to be 31 jobs like that. Yeah. Um, who are some of the voices that you respect the most? that don't currently have a seat at the table, whether just because they've got let go or haven't been hired yet? Um, boy, good question. Uh, you know, a guy like Kevin Lowe, I have a lot of uh, a lot of respect for him. Uh, whenever I talk to Mark Messi, I have a lot of respect for them. They have great insight into the game. Uh, many players have, have good insight. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time with players communicating with them because I'm kind of hibernate up in a video room all year <laughs> long. But... Uh, uh, those would be two guys that come to mind. Glenn Sather's not a GM anymore, but very bright, very smart hockey man. Um, uh, you know, Rob Blake is a guy who works for this organization who still does have a big voice through Dean. Uh, but the guys who know the game, have played the game, have grown up in the game, have the game as their best interest. Uh, a guy like Colin Campbell, I mean, I admire him because he he places more value on on protecting the game than anybody and he wants the game to be the best it can be but he doesn't want to see changes he doesn't want to see things that uh, offend the game um markings on the ice too many people on the ice for uh, ceremonies too many those things are are all nice and fans love them but we want to keep that ice as good as it can be because those those 40 guys out there need good ice they need the best ice they can be so I think there are a few people who I have a, a lot of respect for the comments they make and the way they see the game. There seems to be a fan revolution going on when it comes to discussing advanced analytics. And there's a lot of pushback between 
fans and some players and some management. And it takes place mostly on social media where the argument is, well, if you never played the game, you don't know what you're talking about. And then sure. you know, the fans will come with graphs and charts that some of them I find interesting and some of them just make the eyes roll back in my head. Um, we know that teams utilize some of them. Uh, do the fans who push for it What's the value of having played the game, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Well, <laughs> getting at no, I, I, think, I think you want the analytics to align with what you're seeing and feeling. And uh, if they do, then you're seeing and feeling the right things. If they don't, maybe you're not seeing and feeling the right things. I think there has to be an alignment there. You can't take all the analytics and, and implement them and hope to have success. You have to feel these things in good hockey people. Uh, the Sutters, the Coley Campbells, the uh, Lombardis, uh, the, those people sense and feel things, and then they look at their analytics and they say, yeah, this is, this is compelling because it's actually aligning with what I'm thinking, or it's, it's even more aggressive than what I'm thinking. So I think that's how you have to apply the analytics that are, are going on in the world today. Uh, getting back to some rules, blue line cameras, what's, yeah. the, what's the reaction been after the first year of this or the first partial year of this. well at first it was really difficult because we didn't have cameras we just had the regular tv feeds and it was very difficult to make a ruling or to change a ruling it took a long time which i hate I, we we want these things done quickly and accurately but we don't want to stop the game for five six seven minutes right. we were doing that the blue line cameras have eliminated a lot of that uh they'll be in this year uh i think they'll help I think we saw a decline in offside goals as the season went, so players are realizing they got to drag their skate, they can't cross the blue line. I think coaches are stressing it, so I think it will be a learned habit where players, there will be, there will be a decrease, but these blue line cameras will catch them and hopefully we can get the sport going again as quick as we can because the delays were painful for everybody. Goaltender interference, are you happy with, with that? I think, well? it, I think it worked great. Like, yeah. Goaltender interference was put in place to prevent the egregious play. Slight bumps, slight taps, that's part of our game. I think goalies accept that. They can live with it. I think the players accept it. Um, it's the egregious one where a goalie gets bulldozed out of the net, the puck gets put in. That's what we've eliminated, and we've done a great job of that. We've eliminated those plays. Uh, but now we're very fine. It's it's a very fine line now. Everybody's asking for more and more and more, and almost on goals that we'd never ever second guess a year ago. Now we're saying, hey, better better call that one in. So, I think it's it sorted itself out. I think that teams realize that if it's clearly the decision on the ice is wrong, then the referee is not going to overrule himself. And I think that's what you've got to approach it with. And that's a little bit like video review. Distinct kicking motion. Yeah. We've all heard it so many times. Uh, same goes for this year, same thing? Distinct, yeah. Are we looking for distinct kicking motion? Abs absolutely. Or is that going to change at all? No, and that was a whole we, – we've beaten this topic up with the general managers a number of times. And uh, they're the ones who we present a lot of goals to them, show them a, a group of them, and they'll – they felt that a lot of pucks off skates should count and that they didn't want the skate to be a dangerous tool around the crease. That was my next question. Why Why not allow it? If you can yeah. kick it in or knock it in with your arm, whatever it is, 
why not allow it? But I, that's the answer then. With it's a, a skate, issue. with a skate, it's a right. safety issue, sure. and and with a high stick, it's a safety issue right. too, because you'll have sticks swinging up around the head. So. Uh, we became very liberal two seasons ago where the manager said, hey, we want more goals to count unless, unless it's, if there's any question about whether it's a kick or not, allow the goal. So that was the mantra. And so we've, we've uh, adjusted, and now if it's not a distinct kicking motion, something you, I, I kind of refer to it as a soccer-style play where the skate comes up. It could be a sideways kick. It could even be a reverse kick. Um, we'll take that goal down. But we've been very liberal with it. Our numbers have really dropped, so we're getting less and less of. Well, we're getting the goals, but we're not reviewing them because we're we're, we're rubber stamping them. That wasn't right. a distinct kicking motion. That puck went in off a skate. We're we're going to count it. Yeah. When I was growing up, my dad said there's only two reasons for a rule in hockey: uh, one, to keep people from getting hurt, and two, to make sure the players actually have to know how to play the game. Yeah. Um, is that a fair? <laughs> Excellent. The referee's mantra is fair and safe. They're out there to make sure the game's played fair and that the game's played safe. And I think uh, good referees don't ever forget that, that the game is about the players. It's uh, These guys have great skill sets. Let them use them. Uh, but when a guy gets blatantly hooked in the slot, you got to call a penalty, whether it's the first minute or the last minute. you got to call it. When a guy's tripped blatantly, you got to call it. So I think that's uh, when a guy's cross-checked into the boards or, or, or elbowed into the boards, Again, that's not safe anymore. So now when you when you look at a game, if a guy's doing a good job of making sure it's fair and making sure it's safe, then I think he's doing a, a good job as a referee. Well, I mean, I feel like we could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> I've got a million questions, but I don't want to take up your whole time. I just have one more thing to ask you. Uh, Rogi Vachon, Hall of Fame. Thoughts? Yeah, that was, it was great. It was really wonderful to see him in. Uh, as I told, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, Rogie was kind of the kingpin of those teams in the early 70s, 73, 74, 75. We had really good records, and a lot of it was because Rogie could make the save. He could make the save. We had guys that would clear the rebounds, and uh, the scores were close, the scores were tight, but we were able to chip away and win a lot of games. And it was, as I said, the, the cornerstone of the team at that point was Rogie, so he's, he's earned that Hall of Fame status. And um, congratulations to him. I'll uh, add on to the final question. Any guy that you played with in L.A. who isn't in the Hall of Fame that you think may deserve to be? Well, without question, and I mentioned him earlier in the interview, I think Dave Taylor is a, uh, is, is a player who contributed not only on the ice statistically, but was a big-hearted guy, was a complete, complete team guy, character guy. He would be a guy I would wonder why he's not in. Uh, I have an awful lot of respect for David, one of the players I respect most that I've played or coached with. As I've gotten older as a fan, uh, I boo Gary Bettman a lot less than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I've grown to appreciate the things that he brings to the sport. And uh, I just want to say as a fan, thank you for your caretaking of the game as I've thank grown you. and appreciate got, gained a more nuanced uh, yeah. view of the world. Uh, I've come to appreciate the work. The we'll work. Doing. We'll work on that trapezoid too. <laughs> Mike, thanks for yeah, so thank it. you for your time. Okay, yeah, no problem. For half a century, the Los Angeles Kings have been bringing excitement, passion, and Stanley Cup glory to Southern California, delighting our deeply loyal fan base by being a leader in incredible events and employing the greatest players in NHL history. The legacy continues as we celebrate our 50th anniversary, striving for innovation in a constant pursuit of excellence with a first-class commitment to our fans and partners, and with an unmatched pledge to improving our community. 
We are all kings.